0: Welcome to Tech Talk Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy, while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wozlowski and it's time to talk tech. Is math biased? That seems like a silly question. In math there is right and wrong, so how could it possibly be biased? But humans use math and develop mathematical models and algorithms. And well, humans can certainly be biased. So maybe, in fact, math can be biased. In her new book, Weapons of Math Destruction, Kathy O'Neill explores how big data is increasing inequality and threatening democracy, which is actually the subtitle of the book. Kathy is a mathematician herself and the author of a very cool blog, mathbabe.org. I am thrilled to welcome to Tech Talk today, Kathy O'Neill. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks
1: so much for having
0: me. And thanks so much for re-recording. We had a little snafu last time, so it just shows to what a wonderful person you are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I don't think we could possibly be as good this
0: time as <laughs> We're going to try. We are going to try. So tell me a bit. The title and premise of the book, it probably surprises a lot of people. How can math be a weapon of destruction?
1: Well, just to be clear, I think of math itself as being completely innocent in this whole endeavor. Um, <laughs> I think math math can be weaponized. Okay. Um, and math, it's, so it's not math's fault. To be clear, <laughs> math itself is not a problem, but people wield thematical algorithms um, in in bizarre and unreasonable ways, um, and it blinds people. And it's you know in i'll I'll say a little bit more about that okay my first my first example came like my first i witnessed this first in the financial crisis um, and every actually everyone witnessed it it was like triple a ratings on mortgage backed securities like triple a ratings were supposed to they're supposed to signify something mathematically rigorous, mm-hmm. which was like a you know, that math PhDs were in the back room checking on all the data around these mortgage-backed securities and double-checking and triple-checking that they were going to be safe investments. Um, That was the idea, but of course, that wasn't what was actually happening. They were actually kind of disciplined lies. They were, um, you know, essentially gaming these risk models with bad proxy data, bad assumptions, in particular the assumption that home prices over the nation could never go down, that we could never have, like, highly correlated defaults, um, even though the the actual kinds of mortgages that were being put into these mortgage-backed securities were worse and worse quality. Hmm. So they should have known better. They didn't know better. Um, and they, they, they sort of made mathematics look bad. And the reason they worked, so that's like the, the sort of the cowardly, um, inside story. The reason they worked, which is a slightly different story, is that people, in general, um, and and this is this is going to come back to us. People are afraid of mathematics, and they yeah. also trust mathematics. <laughs> so it's like that combination of fear and trust um, that allows excuse me that allows mathematics to be weaponized like this. So people, essentially, it's a perfect mechanism whereby you can. Do whatever process you want to do and then slap a sort of um, the imprimatur of mathematics on it and say, because this is mathematical, you should both trust this and fear this.
0: Yeah, I um, think I and, see that a lot.
1: Ask any questions. Yeah, I think
0: I see that a lot. You, you know, you hear the term algorithms thrown about. And I think, you know, certainly even I, until I started working at uh, CDT, didn't have a full sense of how often algorithms were used to make decisions about us. It's just one of those things that it's kind of unseen. And then when you're like, oh, well, there's a formula for this, you do like feel a little bit more comfort about that. You know, where do you have some other examples of like where decisions are made about us using these magical algorithms in math?
1: Well, I mean, they're literally all around us, right? <laughs> so Facebook's algorithm decides which which things to show us. Yeah. Um, and you know, between you and me, not a very good algorithm in terms of its, its effect on democracy and the informed citizenry that is required for democracy. Um, the, the example that I first witnessed after leaving finance was the teacher value-added model. Now, my friend um, had opened a school in. Uh, she was a principal of a school in downtown Brooklyn so her teachers were being evaluated by this new teacher assessment system mm. algorithm um, and she said to me you know Kathy like all my teachers are getting these mysterious scores they're unexplained I don't understand them some of them are terrible scores um, you know if they get enough bad scores they're not going to be able to get tenure what can I do and I said well you know mathematics is supposed to Clarify, not obfuscate, so you should ask your <laughs> department of education um uh contact like can you explain these these scores to me and she said, Well, I tried that, and I said, well, what happened? she said, well, the department of Education contact I had told me it's math, you wouldn't understand it,,
0: uh, wow,
1: so yeah, so that was like when when I was like, holy crap, um they're weaponized math again, it's not finance anymore, it's not like tricking investors in Norway to buy, uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities that are rotten at the core. But it's still the same tactic, which is, don't look under the covers because this is math and you are not an expert in math and you should be ashamed of yourself. And like, we're gonna literally produce shame in you so that you will not ask any questions. And that's sort of, for me, that's that's the first sign a yeah. weapon of mass
0: destruction. And if anyone should be asking questions, you'd want teachers to be asking questions. I mean, these are people that are, part of their job is asking questions and then imparting that knowledge on our on youth. So that seems like an important one. You you uh, alluded to this a bit, Facebook's al- algorithm. And of course, we had an election. You know, when we first recorded, it was pre-election, now it's post-election. And yikes, what a different world we're in. And certainly yeah. fake news. Um grabbing headlines everywhere. Do you think that math, I mean, you kind of suggested it played a role in the election, or at least informing, you know, democracy?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, and I'll, I'll bring Google in as well. Like, sure. Google and Facebook, um, among others, have made just tons and tons of money on the assumption that we have mostly bought into, that they can do stuff With algorithms that used to require human beings Um, and Facebook has been the gatekeeper for information and so has Google. Mm -hmm. They're they're literally the gatekeepers for information and Facebook is that kind of the type of information that they they gatekeep is essentially news like more than half the people especially Millennials get their news from Facebook. They don't go directly to websites news websites anymore, they literally get their news from Facebook, yeah. uh, for the Google I just saw an ad last night while I was
0: watching a football
1: game, don't tell anyone I was watching football <laughs> I was trying to boycott football but it's like post-Trump I'm just like whatever we're all gonna die, need we, to we need something
0: to distract us right? So I know, maybe that's. Like, it. I either have to
1: watch football or smoke cigarettes and I think <laughs> this is like slightly less bad um, but I was watching football and like a commercial came on where it was by Google saying you know Hey Google, like, what does a blue whale sound like? You know, so it was depicting, um, you know, this father reading to their daughter. I think the idea being like, oh, I don't have the answer to this question my daughter's asking me in my brain right now, so I'll just refer to Google, and Google will give me that information, and it right. and it's trustworthy, and it's you know, and it's safe for my children, and that is the thing that they are. Claiming, right yeah. and they're claiming they can do this with algorithms and yet and yet like soon after the election when you googled who won the popular vote in the US election the answer came out Trump
0: Wow So yeah. we,
1: we have a problem you know that yeah. we have a problem Facebook is giving us fake news and it's putting it in the same context as real news that's a problem and that's a gatekeeping problem so both of these large companies are making billions and billions of dollars of profit um, and it's not uncorrelated to the fact that we trust them and that we trust them in particular to feed us the information that we need to survive as as citizens and it's a
0: problem. And they just become something that's kind of a given in our home. I mean I think the example you were talking about was probably Google's new home product. You know a lot of people think of Amazon's Alexa. I remember um, early on going back to football, you know, you could ask Alexa, you know, it was after one game into the season. And if you asked her who the best team in football was, it was the Buffalo Bills, which we all know is never true. And it was just because alphabetically, they were first the first team with one win. So it's like, you know, truth as given to you by these companies. And, you know, more and more, if you're doing it through a connected device, you're not even having access to, you know, that that laptop or that interface to to fact check it. And that's scary.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're being essentially asked to believe that this algorithm is better than than our own understanding of the world. Yeah. And at the same time, they're saying, well, we can't possibly use humans um, to help us. So this is Facebook stance and Google stance. Like, we can't possibly hire all those journalists that we put out of work <laughs> to help us um, gatekeep because, well, it's just too high – Too scaled. It's too scaled up. It was like, well, you actually ruined an enormous industry, which was doing this job. Yeah, and it just makes it makes me wonder. Like thirty years ago, some of that the fake news websites that that are all over Facebook. Like, what would have happened to them thirty years ago? Mm -hmm. Before before we had like large scale um, devastation of the of of media. Yeah, no,
0: it's you I know, don't I'm think not, that's I'm an not, understatement. Arguing,
1: I'm not arguing that like the media does a perfect job of gatekeeping. It doesn't. And like we can all talk about the kinds the specific newspapers that we think are have sledged use. But one thing that's great about those those kind of half you know, half good um gatekeepers is that people know there's gatekeeping going on. And there's accountability, right? Um, limited amount of accountability, but there really is an accountability. There's a policy, and people know, like, that the editors are making those decisions, and they can complain. And if they don't like it, they can go to another newspaper. Uh, right now, what we have is like one choice: Facebook. No accountability. No stated policy
0: and decisions be made based on you know the mystical math. Um, let's go back to your book a little bit, because I think we could talk about elections, fake news, endlessly, um, and it's certainly something yeah. that needs to be explored much more in depth. Um, in your book, one of the, I thought, most powerful examples was uh, where you're talking about predictive policing and recidivism. Could you explain a yeah. little bit how math is used in a destructive manner there?
1: Sure. So I should mention what they those two algorithms do first
0: sure.
1: the predicti- the predictive policing algorithm uses um, Arrest records to try to predict future arrests and they usually specifically think about location of those arrests So they, if they find a bunch of um, arrests have happened in a certain location They tend to send police back to that location to make more arrests um, The problem with that is that it, It's essentially like a pseudoscientific Um, justification for continued uneven policing. So we have uneven policing in this country, and by that I really mean racist policing, where we have way more more police in poor black neighborhoods than in richer, whiter neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And when we are when we're focusing on arrests as proxies for crime, then we, in other words, we don't distinguish between arrests and crime, then uh, just the, literally the history of, of arrests in these neighborhoods will, is it reason enough if you use this algorithm to say, oh, the, the algorithm told us to go back to these very same neighborhoods and look for more crime. And it, it sort of, what it does is it propagates this this biased policing system. Now, I wanna go back to this little this, this, the distinction I wanna make between crime and arrests. Hmm. The problem is that there really is a big difference like the statistic I like to mention is that blacks and whites smoke pot at about the same rate but that blacks are arrested for smoking pot about four times as often wow. and it actually depends on the jurisdiction it could be up to ten times as often as whites so what that's telling you is that arrests um, are not the same thing as crimes and the extent to which they agree or disagree it really depends on the police practices um, um, rather than the people who are doing the crime, <laughs> so yeah. much. So, so anyway, so that's that's predictive policing. It creates this feedback loop where we just keep doing the same.
0: The inherent on, biases on, are programmed into that.
1: Yeah, exactly. The bias is in the data, and then the data is fed to the computer, and the computer yeah. says, "Guess what? Send police back to those same places." Right. Or another another thought experiment I like to have is like if after the financial crisis we had gone, we had sent police back like down to Wall Street. To stop and frisk all the bankers and to arrest them for their crimes, <laughs> then you know we'd be having police constantly be in control of Wall Street because trust me, there, there's plenty of there's plenty of drug users on Wall Street.
0: I, I don't doubt that um, for a second.
1: <laughs> but they're just not getting arrested for it, right? Um, so, so that's pretty policing. And then further downstream in the ter- in terms of the data, there's something called recidivism risk. Um, algorithms, and these are given to judges when they're sentencing, when they're putting, with deciding on parole, when they're deciding on bail, but it'll focus on sentencing. Um, and the idea is, it's, go ahead.
0: Oh, nope. Didn't say anything. <laughs>
1: oh, oh, sorry. I heard a, I heard a noise. Um, so, I should mention that recidivism risk means the risk of coming back to prison after leaving prison. So, 97% of prisoners eventually leave prison, so the question is, are they coming back? And the tendency is for judges to, to give people longer sentences when they have higher risk of recidivism. Sure. And you could already ask the question like, wait, does that make any sense? Aren't we like preemptively punishing somebody for something they haven't done? And the answer is absolutely. But the uh, there's a long standing tradition in doing this. And I guess the argument is um, that they are protecting public safety. Um, you know, you don't want people um, who are likely to commit another violent crime out there uh, because it gives them the more opportunity to do so. I should mention that not all the data going into these risk, recidivism risk algorithms are pertaining to violent crime. Um, so that's one problem. But the, the more general thing is that, you know, putting aside the question of whether we should be sending prisoners to prison for longer because of their future risk, not their actual crimes. Wow. Um, the way these these risk scores are are created is very very biased. Now there's two sources of bias. Um there's two sources of data that go into recidivism or scores. The first is the is the arrest records I talked about before which we right. know is biased. And the second is these questionnaires that are given to the um to the defendants and the questionnaires have a bunch of questions that are proxies for race and class. So the questions are things like did you graduate from high school? Do you have a job? Of course. Um have you gotten married? Do you live in a high-crime neighborhood? Um, so they're all, like, none of them say, are you black? None of them say, are you poor? But right. they might as well, because, you know, data, that's how we figure out stuff with data. Yeah,
0: And Facebook um, got in trouble need- for this a little bit, too, with, uh, you know, their ethnic affinity. They, you know, kind of did everything but, say, you know, black, white, Latino, and they came about with all these different, you know, sort of ways to, Figure out race, but uh, you know, so it sounds ex- very similar, but with far more severe outcomes here.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's like a recurring theme in my book is that, like, we were promised when we were given the internet and when we were given big data, we were promised somehow that we were going to transcend race and class. Right. And the opposite is true. The great if equalizing was, force. <laughs> yeah, that just hasn't worked out so well. Um, we are, we are. You know, we happen to be cleaving along those same old lines as we always have, um, which is race and class and and ethnicity. Um, and it's 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 really sad, um, and it's being propagated by the technology and the tools that we've created. Um, you know, Facebook is a great example. Like I, I, talk in one chapter, I talk about payday lending and uh, for-profit colleges. And for-profit colleges, were specifically going after the ones I looked at in my book, Corinthian College, Everest College, um, you know, uh, and all the ones that you know about ITT Tech and Mm -hmm. University of Phoenix. Um, I guess I should be precise, like the Corinthian College, which got in trouble with the Attorney General of California, got in trouble for going after uh, single black mothers uh, who were desperate for a better life. They They would find these people online using the same... Sort of ad, tailored ad technology that I was developing as a data scientist, I should say. Wow, it's a confession. Um, of course, on Facebook as well. Mm-hmm. And once they once these recruiters targeted these people, found you know got them to give them their phone number, they would call them multiple times a day, finding and this is part of their user their manual, their recruiting manual, find their pain points.
0: Oh, yeah, and.
1: and find out like what hurt them the most in their daily lives and promising that those pay points would go away once they were signed up to, to get online education mostly um, with these for-profit colleges. What they actually got were enormous uh, federal aid loans. So in other words, student yeah. debt and very little actual education. Even the the very few people who graduate from these places and like the graduation rates are abysmal. Um, Once they have a degree, a diploma from one of these online, uh, these for-profit colleges, it's worth no more than a high school diploma when they're actually applying for for jobs. So it's like a very, very bad deal. And again, highly tailored, highly targeted advertising um, along race, class, it's very, very discouraging when you think about like, you know, the promise of big data back way back
0: when. Yeah, so let's go to the promise of big data because I, you know, my hunch is, you know, like like me, you you still hold out some hope for this being able to do good. You you know, math, as you said before, is kind of uh, being leveraged in negative ways. Can it be leveraged in positive ways? Is there any hope oh, for unlocking the absolutely. the power of big data, as so many people say?
1: I mean. Number one, absolutely. Number two, it's gonna hard, be hard to get there. Okay. <laughs> so the the absolutely, let's start there because I I don't I actually am a huge fan of big data. Um, if we could use it not to screw people over, but to help people, um, you know, like the recidivism risk algorithms, I, I find them fascinating. And the the fact that we're using all those proxies in the questionnaire um, is is a testament to the fact that we as a society. Send black people and poor people to prison far too often. So the question we should be asking isn't, "Can we blame individuals for these society-wide problems?" The question we should be asking is, "Can we find interventions that will will um, will address the issue of why black people and poor Mm -hmm. people uh, are find themselves in prison time after time? Like, how do we get like how do we improve society? Um, And I think the The results of these recidivism risk algorithms, the same exact algorithms, could be used to investigate that question, to address a society's wide problem, rather than just to assign personal blame. Um, the the question of, you know, who needs who needs a boost in terms of education, um, you know, that could be that could be addressed using the same kind of targeting algorithms. The problem, okay, so and then then it comes to the question of how hard is it going to get be to get us to use these algorithms to help people rather than to exploit people, and there there it's a little trickier because none of the things that I suggest we should do with these algorithms, like to turn them around from exploitative to positive, mm-hmm. none of them involve uh, profiting. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this, Good point. We have a big cup. Co- we have a, like a lots of incentives for companies to to, to prey upon people, um, you know. Most the most vulnerable people in the in the country. We have very few incentives um, for those same companies to say, "Hey, can I give you an opportunity that will actually help you?" Um, so that that's where it's you know, as I like to say in my last chapter, I think I said the free market isn't going to solve this problem.
0: Yeah. Well, and the, f- the funny thing is you see a lot of, uh, you know, policymakers just saying, well, if the companies would change their practices, you know, on some level, it's, it's, you know, their motives are very different than the public sector. So having, you know, policies around this may be important. Let's, um, a couple more questions or just one more question, actually. So you have a new company coming out too, Orca, as you pronounce it in your blog. Um Is this going to be what you're focusing on moving forward, auditing companies and all that sort of stuff to make sure that their algorithms are fair and just or helping them with that?
1: Yeah, so Orca, um, the idea of it is an algorithmic auditing company. And um, I'm hoping to get companies to work with me um, to make sure that their algorithms are legal and fair and non-discriminatory and meaningful. Because, I, you know, there's lots of different ways that algorithms can fail. And it I don't have to focus singularly on racist or sexist algorithms. Like, just sure. even algorithms that are not as meaningful as the designers would have hoped for them to be. Um, so that, that I wanted to use my expertise to help people, to help clarify what algorithms are actually doing. Um, because another thing is that algorithms are often sort of... They're often presented as complete black boxes that have, there's just no way of understanding, they're just too complex and sophisticated. That's of course not actually true. There are ways of learning um, sort of aggregate statistics about what an algorithm is doing um, to get a a crude but important um, view on on whether that algorithm is, is doing something harmful or helpful. Um, depending on what you mean by harmful and helpful. So that's the idea of ORCA. Right. Um, to be honest, like, in the in the Trump, in, in the world of President Trump, I'm not expecting that many um, regulators to be on top of this question of, like, uh, of racist algorithms. Because, you know, to be honest, like, I feel like my book is saying we need to do more than just pay lip service to fairness and um, racism and sexism. And I feel like in the... In, In the world of president trump like we might not even pay paying lip service to this (laughs) on the other hand like there are individual situations where there's laws on the book anti-discrimination laws or or the american disability act saying that you can't um force people to take um um, health exams um when they're getting hired for a job you know, we have cases of, of things that look very much like that, mm-hmm. um, going on with personality tests. So, I think there are individual cases where, where companies will be like, holy crap, I need to make sure that my I'm not going to get sued right. by an individual, well, um, I was and, ask- and in that case, I would love them to come talk to me.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask that, you know, is it just an individual, you know, is there something, if it's not going to be government, which I agree with you it's probably not going to be a great atmosphere under you know the Trump administration most likely um, although maybe they'll surprise us unlikely what can an individual do who's feeling helpless and wants to understand the algorithms that are around them making decisions about them making decisions about you know people they care about is there anything we can do
1: um, well I guess it's, it's important to, to, to remark that many of the algorithms that are sizing us up and down are invisible to us, so that we yeah. don't even know about them. Um, but on the other hand, there are some some examples, like for the teacher value added model, where the teachers are told, this is your score out of you know zero to 100, and we're not gonna explain it to you, and, and this, the stakes are gonna be high anyway. Um, those are examples where I want people to start pushing back. I want people to demand explanation, I want them to demand accountability. When there's a high-stakes decision being made about you, then you should understand the, the things that go into it. You should understand the data, you should understand the sensitivities to that data. Um, and if you want to have a list of questions to ask, then please come to me and I'll, I'll help you ask those questions. Um, that is exactly the kind of thing that I'm intending to try to work on for the rest of my life. Which is That's demanding awesome. accountability to these these kinds of algorithmic opaque systems.
0: Well, Kathy, it seems like your work is more important than ever. A lot of people are saying that, but I think this is genuinely true for what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining Tech Talk, Weapons of Math Destruction. It's Kathy's book, getting great reviews. It's a wonderful read. Go out and get yourself a copy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kathy.
1: It was really my pleasure. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. And if you're interested in the issue of algorithms, CDT is doing a lot of great work on algorithms and inequality, led by our very own Allie Lang. Definitely reach out to us if you are interested in the issue. I'm Brian Wasolowski. Thanks so much for listening.